9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City because can't get out of New York City. Uh, but joining us from Washington, D.C., we are very fortunate to have a special guest, Gene Sperling, who was uh, director of the National Economic Council, both under Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, and uh, one of our uh, regulars and good friends, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Good to be with you. Hi, Gene. Thanks. I'm happy to be here, David. Thank you. Well, we're lucky to have you here on, on several grounds. Um, one, of course, is you have a new book out called On Economic Dignity, uh, which I've had the pleasure to read, and I think it is uh, an extraordinary book, and I think it's extraordinarily uh, well-timed because uh, even though at the forefront of our minds at the moment is this public health crisis, um, which now has taken the lives of uh, over 86,000 Americans, over 300,000 people around the world. Uh, we are also, of course, in the midst of an economic crisis unlike we've ever seen. And today, uh, and we're taping this on a Thursday, we, we got the latest unemployment figures with another just under 3 million people uh, reporting for unemployment in the last week, which brings the total um, up to 36.5 million in the past eight weeks. So this is unlike anything that we've seen since the Great Depression. And any minute now, I think we're going to pass the levels of the Great Depression. Uh, Ed, I know you've uh, been uh, immersed in the book as well. Perhaps you could start off with a question for Gene. Sure. Well, first of all, Gene, congratulations um, on uh, bringing the book. Second of all, uh, you know the title is is great on dignity. It's 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 a huge hugely germane theme in the middle of COVID. And I know you must have written it before coronavirus, but you, I think, are one of those rare people who have a book that was written before it that becomes even more relevant because of it. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, of you know books on you know why tennis is joyful or the world's best nightclubs which you're not going to be doing too well um, during this pandemic. So congrats on that. Um, let, let me start um, by asking, I haven't fully read the book yet, but it's excellent. Um, let, let me just start by asking um, about this word dignity, which is of course central to your whole point. Um, how does the importance of providing dignified employment, how's that been affected by the lockdown? Well, first of all, uh, I think there's kind of a realization moment. And then we're seeing things that are very specific to the lockdown and the potential reopening. I think the real realization moment comes from something I do quote in the book, which is Martin Luther King's very famous speech at the Memphis sanitation worker strike in 1968. And that, that speech is often quoted for the line, all labor has dignity. But the sentence that leads up to it 
he says, someday our nation will come to realize that the sanitation worker is as essential as the physician for our health and well-being. And, and I would say that, you know, that probably was an inspirational line to many people when they read it or when they hear it. But now in the middle of this crisis, it is so powerfully real. Suddenly we have to deal with our national dissonance that the people who are putting their lives on the line for us, farm workers, delivery workers, home health aides, are among the worst treated economically in our country. Half of farm workers don't have health care workers. Half of nurse and home health aides couldn't take a single day off to care for their own uh, uh, child. So I think we are dealing with that awareness in a way that is very powerful. And I hope will make people ask, why is it that we never thought people, those workers were essential or deserved to be treated with dignity. You know, the second quote in Martin Luther King's speech, that I, that same speech, is he also says, the recognition of dignity, the applause, calling people heroes is, is beautiful, but it's empty in and of itself. His line is, what good is it to win the right to sit at an integrated lunch counter if you can't afford to buy your family a meal? And so I think for many of those workers, who are putting their lives on the line, they appreciate the applause, but if they're not getting a living wage, if they're not getting hazard pay, if they're not getting uh, universal sick pay or health care, I think it will fall very, very empty. And so that's a realization moment for us as a country. How do we respond right now? And how will we respond later in calling for a bigger vision, a new deal, an economic compact uh, uh, later on? But I also think that there are specific things we're seeing here that go to that word dignity. Now, I don't try to make this a philosophy book, but I do quote Kant's line that Dignity means never feeling that you are being treated as purely a means to another's, another person's ends, that you're not being treated as an end in yourself. I mean, if you look at the meat workers and the poultry workers being ordered back, that must be the most tangible moment of us seeing our top leader in our country just treating workers as if they are a means to an end. Because those workers will go back. They're proud that they provide the food supply. But poultry workers already, there was so much deregulation in poultry, they were almost already at seven times the level of carpal tunnel syndrome, twice the number of serious injuries. And as you know, there was an Oxfam expose that showed many had to wear diapers because they couldn't get away to a bathroom break. So when he orders them back, and says, by the way, I want sweeping liability for their employers at a time when you've got perhaps 12,000 of those workers uh, with COVID, you've got more than 50 dying, you have communities shutting down because they're meat plants. That's not only dumb economic policy that will backfire, it's also almost the, the you know, epitome of treating somebody without dignity in the sense that they are purely a means to a reopening and there is no concern for them as intrinsic, as having intrinsic value or need to take care of their family as well. So, you know, I think from a practical perspective, as someone looks out at the situation we're in, there's a, there, there are two things that one might focus on. One is What's broken? How did we get into this situation? Then the other is, how do we fix it? And I think when you look at what's broken, one of the things that's striking, and I think you've just touched on it to some degree, 
is the degree to which this particular crisis reveals much deeper problems in the way that we as a country have approached our economic priorities, not just during the Trump administration, but for the past 40 years. Um, This is a crisis that has victimized those at the bottom of the of the economic scale, uh, and 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 it and in many ways it has been a crisis that has revealed yet again the problems of inequality in our system. Uh, it it has affected disproportionately people of color. It has affected disproportionately women. Um, but you know, it's also revealed that in the United States. If you lose your job and one quarter of our workforce is out of work right now, you lose your health care. In the United States, if the government asks you not to go to work, unlike in Canada or the UK or France, they don't provide you with 75 or 85 percent of your salary to enable you to get through that because we don't deal with this issue of uh, or, or we haven't prioritize this issue of creating a social safety net in the way other countries have. You, you talk about it in the book as a compact, you know, and, and our compact is, is pretty thin. It's got big holes in it. So talking about what does this crisis reveal to you about what's broken in our system? Right. So I think I'm going to hit what you said in, with, with kind of two points. So one is like, what is the basic compact of work? And you know, I, I do believe if you go back to the New Deal, if you go back to the most inspirational language FDR used, it was this type of compact. It was the sense that people do their part. They work, they serve, maybe they're care, caregivers, but they're doing their part and that people should have a degree of economic dignity. When he calls for Social Security, he doesn't say, I'm worried about the elderly poverty rate. He says, this is terrible that people who served them, their families and their countries their whole lives are dying without dignity in the street. He's calling on that sense of compact and FDR makes a bigger, a big start. But I do think that it has been the kind of mission of progressive economics since then to solidify the holes in that new deal. And I think some new holes, some were never there. There's new holes that have been created. Uh, uh, and some, and there've been things that have changed. So uh, things that were never there were obvious. We never had universal health care for everybody. Uh, uh, and we've made progress through the CHIP program. We've made progress through the Affordable Care Act. It's huge. I mean, 20, 30 million more people covered. But we're, you know, that's, that's still been an incremental progress where we saw President Clinton and Truman and others fail on the way. I also think that we, we see elements in the compact that get more important with time. Since FDR spoke, the notion of comprehensive paid leave, universal sick leave, is a much more critical aspect of a social compact in a world where more and more uh, parents have to work. And so maybe you didn't see childcare or universal paid uh, family leave in uh, in FDR's second Bill of Rights in his 1944 State of the Union. But if you take that larger value of being able to care for your family with dignity, those things are broken. And I think the opportunity for, I hope, a President Biden is that we tend to talk about each of these as like little strands. How well can we do on minimum wage? You know, what's the policy on health care? And I think you have more power when you go to that larger value 
of should people who are doing their part, doing their share, carrying their part of the load, shouldn't they be able to raise their family with a degree of dignity and then ask what that requires? Now, little bits of progress, David, that we've seen. Uh, if you're a policy wonk, you know that our unemployment system doesn't cover tens and tens of millions of people, ever. Uh, this is the first time we're covering a gig worker. It's the first time we're co covering a domestic uh, a house uh, caregiver who maybe works for a few different people. That's progress. Let's hope we don't go back. It's the first time we've had any major national legislation to have universal paid sick leave. Yes, we left out 50%, but we're also seeing not only is that right morally, not only is it hard for us to say that other people should care for our sick but can't care for their own, but we're also seeing it's just smart. If you don't have universal health care, if you don't have universal paid sick leave, people go to work with symptoms. Uh, so this is hopefully an awareness of the holes that already existed, the ones that have grown, and an overall desire to ask what economic security or dignity means for a typical worker and their family. But the second point is a really deep point, and it's one I do talk about in the book, which is one of the ways that just focusing on jobs and median wages and things like that can take our eye off the ball, is what destroys economic dignity for a lot of people in our country is not their median wage each and every year or their job each and every year, but they have one moment where they suffer economic devastation and they lose everything. They lose their house, they lose their health care, they often lose their spouse, their mental health. Many people never recover. No country in the world, even before this crisis, no advanced country uh, did, existed where losing your job was so harmful, where you lost so much. So when we think of having an economic dignity compact, we can't just say, it can't just be a living wage. It can't even be just universal paid sick leave. You've got to have a way of helping to keep people whole when they are going through the accidents of life. You know, it's not your fault if you lived in Detroit during the financial crisis. It's not your fault if you happen to be a restaurant owner during a pandemic. That should be a, maybe it's a tough time. Maybe you save a little more. Maybe a relative sleeps on your couch, but it shouldn't mean that you're devastated. Uh, economically. And that's, and I think, as you say, even in our response to this crisis, we've done better in some ways with bigger uni uh, unemployment insurance, but we still have so many holes that we will end up having the most job loss, the most unemployment insurance, but the real test will be how many lives are really devastated because we didn't have a way to keep people whole and afloat through just uh, through through no fault of their own other than that they were alive and working during a once in 102 year pandemic. I want to go to Ed now, but I do want to underscore that there's another implication of your point, and that is there's a national security implication. We are incredibly vulnerable to this kind of outside shock. It, it is bringing our society to its knees in ways that other countries aren't because we lack resilience, and resilience is a critical component of national security, right? Ed, go ahead. Uh, so as you know, Gene, that the first line of um, Germany's constitution, its basic law, is human dignity shall be inviolable. Um, now that was written just after the war, after everything that had happened, um, and with, with American input and, and British input, very, very carefully considered line. It wasn't we the people 
it wasn't, um, it, 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 you know, it wasn't um, the kinds of phrases we expect of constitutions since the American one. It was a very, very carefully thought through um, line. What you're saying on this uh, um, podcast and, and in your book, um, to me, comes very, very close to transcending the whole um, sort of economic law that we've all been living under for, for many, many decades. Um, uh, Benjamin Applebaum had a very good book last year about how economics has ceased to be a means to an end. It's become the end. What you're saying is that there's something else that should be an end, and economics is simply a tool. That, that's quite close to sort of blasphemy, uh, um, even amongst liberal economists. Um, how do you consider um, persuading economists that you're right, that dignity, that something human, a non-measurable, something non-metric, on which we're not awaiting any data, that it's a philosophic point you're making? How do you, how do you anticipate persuading economists of your thesis? You know, what I've said, and I say in the book, and I say from 30 years of being part of the national economic debate, I'm not saying that GDP or median wage or job things are, are worthless. Uh, I'm just saying that they're not the end goal. If you tell me a country grew at 5%, uh, I wouldn't be able to tell you whether they were serving the end goal of economics because if it all went to a royal family or a dictatorship or the one-tenth of one percent in a country, how could you say in a democracy that that was uh, reaching the end goal? So I, I, I say that you know the Kennedy line, which I think is misused, that a rising tide lifts all boats, is not an automatic assumption. It's the test. You know, is growth lifting all boats? And so, so I think to say, let's ask, and this is what I started with. I didn't start to write a book on dignity. I started to write a book to say, what is the ultimate end goal of economic policy? And I felt that the answer to that fit into this three tiers of economic dignity I described, the capacity to care for family, to pursue purpose and potential, and to be able to work without domination and humiliation. And one of the things I've said when I've talked to economists that I do think has registered is I've said, isn't it shouldn't it be troubling to us that we don't even give an issue the dignity of being an economic issue unless it fits into an economic metric? So if tens and tens of millions of our people go to work every day and they are subject to abuse or sexual harassment, or they can't take a day off, or, or they have to return to work within a week of a childbirth, or can't be there when their parent is passing away. You know, it's like, oh, that only becomes an economic issue when somebody shows it affects labor force participation. That's what happened with national paid leave. It became kind of an economic issue when somebody could show it fit into that economic metric. But why? If we know I mean, you don't have to be an economist. You know from what you talk about with your spouse or your partner that how you're treated at work is probably as key of an economic issue as anything. I asked what is important on your deathbed. What would you think is important about your deathbed in your economic life? Unquestionably, your camaraderie, the degree you worked with respect is high. So I say, why is it? Do you feel good that sexual harassment is not a first-tier economic issue, that net paid leave is only a 
uh, an economic issue when you show labor force participation? No. Uh, by focusing on economic dignity, it keeps your eye on what are the priorities, what should be your ultimate end goal. And then, yes, you can figure out what the best metrics are to uh, see how we're doing in those things. But I really have seen it. When metrics start being confused as the end goal, people take their eye off and millions of people become invisible and their pain becomes invisible. And last point I'll make is I, I, I kind of say in the book how, wow, you know, the gig economy got us so focused on all these workers who don't have economic security. Well, that was probably a shock to uh, uh, Ai Pu, who runs the National Domestic Workers Alliance, because on the day that UberX was launched, there were 2 million domestic workers, of which 12% had health care and 7% had any retirement plan. And so they were largely invisible because we didn't see that in the job numbers or the wage numbers. And maybe if we were asking about economic dignity, those workers would have been less visible before we got into our fascination with Uber and Instacart. You know, I, I listened to what Ed was saying, talking about sort of the, 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 the philosophical underpinnings of this and the debate. And I, you know, having been in Washington throughout that debate for, uh, you know, now almost 30 years of it. Um, I have to say that, I found the book incredibly refreshing and urgently needed because the reality is when I got to Washington, when you got to Washington, sort of roughly around the beginning of the Clinton administration, um, the, the, the big innovative idea within the Democratic Party was to be a little bit more sensitive to the market. To be, and by the market, you know, when Bob Rubin was in, it was, it was kind of more the bond market. But, you know, it was, we, were, we were, you know, it was kind of not Reaganism, but it, you know, it was a third way. We were, we were going to do this with some, con with, with some conscience, but the market dominated the way. And there's a critique that is going on within sort of the progressive part of the Democratic Party that says the, the centrist part of the Democratic Party has been too corporatist. It has used the market too much as a metric. It has used GDP too much as a metric. It has used the, 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 the benefit accruing to the 1% as too much of the metric and has left too many people, in it, not directly, but inadvertently. That's been the consequence of it. And, and, and so the question becomes, are we, because of the crisis we're going through, likely to see something of a, of a sea change. Because to be honest, if the Democratic Party took your book and said, this is going to be our handbook, while it draws on some great traditions, FDR, uh, I loved your reference to RFK's description of GDP. Um, you know, we, the, 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 the party has had this. And even when, you know, during the Clinton administration, you were advocating for this. Joe Stiglitz was advocating. Bob Reich was advocating. I mean, the debate's been going on. It, it, would, it would be a departure. Do you think this is one of those moments, like the Depression was, that can force us to pivot, force us to move on to a different formula and that kind of philosophical shift that Ed was talking about, and I think you're advocating. Well, 
you know, in doing a book where you try to say, what's the end goal of what you're doing? Part of what I'm trying to do is say, let's not let ourselves get so constrained into relitigating each little position. I, I mean, I, one of the things I found is that people dig into certain defenses or they dig into certain critiques. You know, you can go back and talk about different things. I mean, look, Bill Clinton started with a huge tax increase on the top 1%. Uh, his vision of people work full time, shouldn't have to raise their family in poverty was behind the major earned income tax credit. So I think there was, you know, a, a lot of the positive value. But I think we can spend too much time debating well, what could you have done when Bill Clinton had six years of an all-Republican Congress? And I think those are important debates, but I think they're less important than telling everybody, hey, you don't have to dig into the past critique. You can constantly evolve and look at new information. And for me, I think a lot of that new information came in the, the, first, century, the first decade of this century, because I think that the evolution of globalization the evolution of economic concentration did make a very powerful case that however well-intentioned the kind of public investment strategy that people like me and Bob Reich and Bill Clinton had, which was very progressive, uh, uh, you know, invest in people, invest in infrastructure, invest in workers. I think everybody in the progressive side still believes in that. But I think where the people like Larry Michelle at EPI turned out to be right was that how much structure of power uh, would affect inequality and, uh, and how our economy operated. And you can argue about how much of it was true in the 90s when things were growing well and when you had all Republican Congress and you were limited in your choices. But that shouldn't keep us from being able to see the reality of that and that you need and that seeing the weakening of unionization, seeing the deterioration of the minimum wage, the increase in economic concentration, including in what we've seen in big tech, but also places like the meat industry and poultry industry, has led to a world where workers are diminished in their wages, their benefits, but also in their economic dignity in being forced to be treated like in micro-efficiency terms like a a, a uh, an Amazon warehouse worker or a poultry or a poultry worker doing 175 birds per minute. So I think there's been an evolution. And I think some of that has appropriately, as Kane said, been people responding to what they've seen in the world. Some people might have been there earlier, but you know, those are good academic debates. But I think what you see is truly a shift happening. And I think the real question is going to be if you do have a democratic president and you do have a democratic administration or you have divided government, has this message started to shift the, the debate so that it becomes economically viable and not just a nice speech that dies in the moment. And what gives me a little hope is in Washington, D.C., federal government still has $7.25 minimum wage. There wasn't a chance in hell you could get $15 minimum wage when Barack Obama was president. And yet people kept pushing. They took to the streets. They fought for it. They still haven't changed the United States Congress. But you see states like Arkansas, not just California, are increasing the minimum wage. Why is that? It's not a view about market philosophy. 
it's about this dignity of work. It's their sense that people working hard should be able to live at the degree of dignity. And I think the key thing for a Joe Biden is to seize on this moment of realization, to seize on the lesson, lessons of 20 years about the strength of economic concentration and corporate power and the minimization of worker power and say, this is the moment where I can push this out and it's going to be hard for those on the conservative or at least the independent side to not come with us. So I think of it more, I really do think, David, we're having that shift. And I don't think it's necessarily good people versus bad people uh, or who's got a good heart. I think people are, are evolving as they should with the economic times and what they're seeing. And an economic dignity test is to basically say, hey, you know, it might have been right. You know, deficits are a perfect example. I have no question that that strategy worked in 1993 and 94, but it doesn't make sense right now when you've got a glut of savings and, uh, you know, when you're doing a one-time major investment to help us out. So for some reason, I want to say that if we keep our eye on the ball on what matters most, maybe we can all you know, loosen up a little bit on the old debates and go where the evidence tells us is the best way to reach this unifying goal of giving universal economic dignity to all of our people. From your lips to God's ears. Ed. So uh, we haven't directly or in detail addressed universal basic income. Um, and a lot of people... Um, um, supported it before the coronavirus, but um, uh, increasing numbers apparently since, the, for obvious reasons, since the coronavirus hit. I sense from from what I've read so far of your book and also what you said that you share my doubts about UBI, namely that people, human beings want to be wanted, they need to be needed, they want to play a role in society notwithstanding all the sort of fiscal arguments against, you know, giving money universally to people like us who can work, telework, and can afford to um, work from home, uh, and, and the sort of wastage that implies, there is, again, a philosophic objection here to that being the solution to automation. It's, it's kind of a sort of council of despair. Am I right in thinking that's your instinct on universal basic income? Yeah, I... I it's not the direction I go and however much I respect the passion and values of those who do advocate. But what I try to distinguish, Ed, is I try to distinguish between a universal program where you say, oh, what makes something universal is that we give Ed, David, and Gene the exact amount every year as anybody in our economy does. That's not the universal that you want. The universal you want is that everybody has universal economic dignity. That requires boldness, but it's boldness to make sure that people universally, it goes back to the question David was raising, that you are always able to live with the degree of economic dignity. Now, uh, I think that for people who support universal health care or support big, bold changes, they should understand that having hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year go to people who don't really need it could actually crowd out, not, not private savings, that's not my focus, crowd out the movement towards the investments against structural racism, the investments towards affordable housing, the investments towards universal health care, 
that we need. So what I say is let's focus on what ensures everybody economic dignity. Now, I think the crisis does give us some insights into that because the thing that's closest to uh, a UBI check is the $1,200 check that's gone out. And I think that's been a good idea, but it's kind of a good idea because our system's broken. The compact that, that the safety net David was mentioning is broken. So geez, let's get the $1,200 check out for the people who are falling through the cracks. But I think everybody who gets that check realizes that it's either too little or too big. It's either going to people who say, I really don't need this. I'm working. I'm doing, I'm one of the 70% doing fine. And the people who need it aren't really getting the help. And, and the boldness that you're seeing sometimes in some European countries is that they are being bold, but they're targeting it to those who need, need it. So if you give 100% wage replacement to somebody unemployed, that is a big, bold innovation, but it's hitting the people who need it to live with economic dignity. If you do the payroll protection, where you say companies, if you keep your idled workers on the payroll and give them health care, will cover it. That is big and bold, but it is targeted to those who need it most. And I think we're seeing right now uh, that that is what we really need. And I support the $1,200 payment, but I do support it because we have too many people falling through the cracks. Not that it's our model for how we ensure economic dignity. And I actually think that even people like you know, Bernie Sanders agree with that, that they are in their own way focused on this compact of the universal health care, ensuring people at all times can live with dignity. And my last problem on the UBI is I do not buy this idea that we will ever ha not have enough jobs for people. We have so many jobs we need that go unfilled in having a dignified economy. Ask a Ask the heroic parents, and I mean heroic parents, who advocate for their children with autism or disability, uh, do they have enough help? You know, could, could, would their dignity and be better if we were a more compassionate country that gave them skilled, affordable people to help their children, their young adults live the lives they want? Those are missing jobs. Do we have enough people helping people when they leave from prison? to get back into a, to another job? Do we have enough people helping children at poor schools get the mental health they need, the college advidance they need, the after school? So what I'm saying is, if we ended up having more wealth, but less private sector jobs, I wouldn't just write everybody a check. I would take those, that money and create what I call double dignity jobs. Dignified work that's well-paid, has a career path, but it's providing dignity to so many people in America who are, who are not getting it. And that, to me, is a far better solution than saying, let's just write everybody a ten dollars or $12,000 check and do nothing to address these major gaps in our, in our country. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that uh, there, there are other knock-on benefits that we don't talk about. I talked about one earlier, national security, the resilience that comes from that. Uh, but when I think about what you call an economic dignity net, and I think about how, for example, European countries have dealt with this or with past crisis, the 2008-2009 crisis. 2008-2009, two car companies went bankrupt. One was GM, one was Saab. GM we had to step in and bail them out because a million people would have been thrown into the marketplace. In Sweden, there was a social safety net. 
they allowed that they knew that the people who lost their jobs if Saab went out of business would be taken care of. So what happened was it allowed Saab to be responsive to the market. It went out of business, which was allowing capitalism to do its thing got reinvented. They it went in, in some other directions. We don't allow that. We spend too much money now in two crises running, bailing out big, rich companies that have been, you know, misallocating assets, airlines that have been buying back stock and so forth. And now, you know, come to us and say, well, if you don't help us out, we're going out of business. And so having the social safety net takes away that argument and, it's, and the negative incentives that are associated with that. So I think I agree about, I agree a significant amount with what you're saying, and I agree that our ultimate focus should be on individual people. And it is, it is, you know, you're seeing this with the small business program, the PPP. You really do have to focus when you're going through companies on making sure there's fairness, there's not unjust enrichment. Uh, and I think if, if you do things that fit your values more like that, uh, you can maybe do more in that area. My only place I disagree with you is, is on the auto companies. I mean, I was part of the auto task force and I think that it was right for the future of American manufacturing for hopefully bringing the supply chain back for us being able to compete for the electric energy cars of the future to do that. But David, that's just, that's a view that's kind of specific to manufacturing because the fear was that you would lose the supply chain and that you would not be able to bring it back, which is what happened to us in consumer electronics. So I think there was a different reason to do that, but I think, I think maybe where you and I would agree is the right way to have done that wouldn't have been like at a rescue. It would have been to have a national competitiveness strategy where you focused on making us a magnet for the manufacturing of the future. And now as we're seeing, for manufacturing, even on things that might be critical to our national healthcare and national security pipeline. So I do think there was a good reason to invest in keeping the auto sector strong, but I agree it would be better to have a strong national economic strategy would have been the right way to do it as opposed to, you know, the kind of desperate bailout that uh, or rescue that we had to do in 2009, which was also part of, you know, preventing a cycle down into what then could have been a, a depression. By the way, I totally agree. And I think what, ha- what had took place then had to take place then. But, you know, you describe in your answer better formulation, which is we have the right social safety net in place. So we are not doing it for the wrong reasons. Right. And we have a national competitiveness strategy. So if we are investing, we're doing it for a strategic reason. Yeah. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. Ed? Yeah, I am. Um, uh, I was trying to think what should be a final question because I have many questions. And I do, I do have a, one above all that I'd like to ask you is if you're um, a Republican or even, you know, even say a, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and Elon Musk type, and you're listening to the thesis of your book, um, they're thinking, well, where's the wealth creation? Now, I know, I know that your answer would be, well, it's only with security that people can take risks and that actually uh, economic dignity would, actually, would therefore be very good for small business formation, et cetera. I, I'm, I'm aware that would be your answer. So that's not my question. My question is, the politics of your message, how do you message this to counteract that? Oh, this is just another Democrat in a different way, talking about handing out money to, you know, 
people. So let, let me say a couple of things. One, first of all, I very explicitly say in the book that while I, you know, support uh, a small wealth tax on the people with excess wealth, uh, uh, you know, over 50 million, as Elizabeth Warren initially proposed, I say in the book, it is not good enough just to bring down the wealth of the, of the or to use the, some of the wealth of the top to help have the safety net. You want to also be able to help people have more wealth themselves, uh, and that that has been shown to provide a cushion that has been important for racial and economic uh, opportunity. Uh, and the racial wealth gap in our country is so disgraceful, and it's going to get worse in this crisis. So I do believe that you know we were for things like the USA account under Clinton, but right now I think we need to do more for home ownership, particularly for minority home ownership. So we should be about wealth creation. Number two, I say very clearly that a growing economy can absolutely, uh, can and should be helpful to an economic dignity uh, economy. A larger economy, a a growing high productivity economy uh, makes it easier for people to work less and be with their family and still support them. Uh, A growing pie allows you to let more people move up or move in without cutting people out. I just simply say it's not the end goal. It's the, the test is, is it lifting our boats? Is it lifting economic dignity? And I guess I also, you know, I haven't gone through the three pillars of economic dignity in detail, but let me mention the second one, which is, does everyone have first and second chances to pursue purpose and potential? That is truly a place where dignity and growth meet together. Because you know, I say in, our, in, in my book that as, as horrible as our country was in not applying its values to African-Americans and slaves, obviously, and women and Native Americans, that value that you should have a first and second chance to pursue your potential led to us being the first country to get rid of debt prisons, the first country to have a fresh start in bankruptcy. And if you read back then, it was very much about that it was morally right, but also we would grow more and we would be more productive. And I think if people took that second pillar seriously, they would realize that there is a commonality between the 17-year-old minority youth who has been victimized and continues to be victimized by you know, structural and present racism and a criminal justice system that discriminates against them, and the 55-year-old worker laid off in a factory. We think of them as different, but what, what brings them together is our failure to allow them to have first and second chances to reach their purpose and potential. And the harm in, in thinking you live in a country that doesn't care enough about your chance to pursue purpose and potential. A greater commitment there is very pro-dignity, but it would also be very pro-growth as well. You know, just to, as, to, as a final question uh, from me, you know, as six months ago or a year ago, if we had a, que- a discussion about what's going to define the 2020 election, we might have talked about Russia and Trump, or we might have talked about uh, inequality, or we might have talked about a whole host of other issues. But clearly, the issue that's going to define the 2020 election uh, for the average American who probably has lost all their savings, who, if they haven't lost their job, a friend has lost their job, or a family member has lost their job. And those jobs may not come back as they once knew them. They may not come back for a couple of years. The big question is going to be, how do we rebuild? Yeah. Where do we 
where do we go from here? And what's the vision for rebuilding? And in the book, one of the things that I like very much is that you sort of describe it in the, di- in the context of dignity. You talk about, I think, inclusive dignity and divisive dignity as the choice that we face. And, and I, I think it would be really useful to, as we wrap up for you to describe what that choice is. So, you know, I started thinking about this when I left the White House. It was before the era of Trump. And it discouraged me to hear people say, oh, well, you know, Trump or these right nationalists in European countries, well, they're appealing to people's dignity. And I thought, well, how, how can you use the word dignity for that? Dignity is about intrinsic value shared by all people. And that type of, quote, appeal to dignity is far more like the worst moments of our past where, you know, Du Bois called it the psychological wage, trying to give people a psychological wage to feel that they are superior to a diminished other who has a different race or is an, or is an immigrant. And so I really don't think that is worthy of the word dignity, but I want to describe it as divisive. It's, it's dignity that tries to divide people, separate, make some people feel better, not because you've improved their economic situation or hopes, but because you've focused them on an other, an enemy, somebody to blame. And, you know, you can go through the different examples, but we'll never have a greater example than the 1930s, where that sense of appealing to people through superiority and diminishment and dehumanization of others was behind the rhetoric you saw in Italy and Germany. And then Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes with an inclusive dignity. It says, let's bring everybody together. Let's have a stronger economic, you know, dignity compact. And I think that that really is in some ways a bit of the, you know, I'm not trying to compare that we would go and you know, the horrors of the 1930s, but it is a difference of, do we have a message to the people that says our way through this mess is to just make some people the enemy, to increase racial resentment and appeal to to people's worst angels? Or is it we bring people together and say there is this common value, this value that leads people in Arkansas as well as San Francisco to vote for a higher minimum wage, to now support uh, protections against people with pre-existing conditions? Because it's a basic American value that Teddy Roosevelt expressed as well as any Democrat, that if you are doing your part, you should be able to raise uh, uh, your family with dignity should be able to work with dignity. You should be able to retire with dignity. And I think if you appeal at that level, there is a broader audience out there. The next president's going to have to do two things, David. You hit it right. They, they're going to have to not just bring back the jobs with better management of reopening and, and the health solution. They're going to have to. They're going to have to build better jobs. They're going to have to have more of that competitiveness strategy and figure out how do we create jobs in the process of making a a more green, sustainable future. But I also think they're going to have to speak to this larger value. They're going to have to seize on this moment and say, we just saw how every worker was essential to our value. We saw them putting their lives on their line. We saw their dignity. Now, are we going to just applaud and call them heroes? Are we going to do what we should in the United States? and treat them and a lot treat them with economic dignity and allow them to raise their family with economic dignity. Well, I, I think, you know, 
we are going to be presented with a stark choice. And, you know, for many of us, we've talked about the 1930s as a pivot for a long time. That was 90 years ago. Uh, and I think for the remainder of this century, they may talk about the 2020s in the same way, that we face a choice, that we face a choice as a country, that we face a choice as a world. And, you know, part of it is what you described. But there are authoritarians, anti-globalists, nationalists, ethno-nationalists, people seeking to divide, people seeking to use this moment to gain more power for fewer people, people seeking to use this moment to undermine democracy. And it is not written in stone today, the day that we're doing this, that those views will not triumph over these views. And I think over the next six months and over the next four years and over the next eight years and beyond, we are going to be judged by how we make that choice. And I think the way we have to begin to make that choice is we have to think about our goal. Why do we come together as a society? Why do we organize an economy? It's not just to have the biggest GDP in the world. It is to have the best quality of life for the people within the country that we can muster. It is to afford them some dignity and some security. Um, and why I think the book is so important is because it gets to that question right now when we need to be asking it. It's a, it is on economic dignity. I encourage everybody out there, and Gene, you'll be very happy to know that we have an audience of tens of thousands of policy nerds. They are the kind of people who will immerse themselves in this, um, and, and they will enjoy doing it. Uh, the book is extremely well-written. Uh, it's lively. It draws on your perspective as a, a really extraordinary background in terms of playing the leading economic advisory role in two different administrations. I encourage people to go out. The book's on sale now on economic dignity. I thank you, Gene, for joining us. I thank you, Ed, of course, every week for joining us. I thank you, everybody out there for joining us. And stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>